Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this Advent season, which reminds us that a child was born for the purpose of dying. It baffles me, God, as we look to uh, the Christmas story, how the eternal God who dwelt outside of time enters into our, t- our time stream, enters into humanity, and now has that same body in heaven and is coming again. Remind us uh, every week, especially in this Christmas season, of the purpose for your incarnation. Now open our hearts and our minds to the proclamation of the word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would dwell both with the speaker and the hearer, that we would be fed and nourished and changed. For we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, did you see this week the National Oceanic and the Atmospheric Administration issued a warning that uh, November 28th and 27th and 28th, there was a mass coronal ejection, coronal mass ejection. Anyway, it was going to take about three days to reach Earth. So the, the warning was that on December 1st, which was Friday, that this uh, plasma cloud would, would reach Earth and possibly overwhelm the magnetosphere. And so there was a warning about... Uh, GPS going out, satellites being dysfunctional, radios service going out. In fact, it's not an idle warning because uh, just this year, 40 satellites that belong to Starlink uh, re-entered the atmosphere because of of the solar storms. The solar storm hits the Earth. Most of it is pushed around because of the magnetosphere, but it also warms up the atmosphere slightly so that the satellites, which are in near-Earth orbit, start to feel the effects of drag of the atmosphere, and then they plunge into Earth. So 40 satellites from Starlink um, were lost because of that. Now, here's the interesting news. A recent study that was been done by the Smithsonian Institute predicted that there's going to be a uh, dramatic change in the Earth's magnetosphere because they're predicting a soon flop of the north and south poles. There's a, the, the field strength of a magnetosphere has dropped 40% in the last 400 years, and they're estimating that it's decaying 10 times faster than they previously had predicted. This uh, reversal, prior to the reversal, the, the magnetosphere starts to decline in its effect, which leaves us open more to the sun and also other outside radiation coming in to the Earth and affecting our, our atmosphere and our biosphere. Of course, you know, what's happening is the Earth has this largely molten iron core, and, it, and it's turning, and it creates this magnetic effect that, that, uh, that keeps us sheltered from these uh, uh, solar storms. But it's been estimated that in the last... Uh, 20 million years that the the polar season has, the polar, uh, magnetic polar has flipped a hundred times. And then they guess this because they uh, dig down into the Earth's core, especially in the the ocean. They dig these core samples and they find that when, wherever the poles are at the time, it leaves magnetic traces in the elements. And so when it, they can guess not only that it has flipped because it's back and forth, but when it has flipped and over how much time it takes. So they, they, that's where they've come to this analysis. So 
what's of interest to us is that the researchers are predicting an imminent flop in the magnetosphere, which could potentially cause uh, increased cancer rates and uh, other environmental disturbances, uh, a potential collapse of the power grid, and uh, of course the GPS satellites, all the near-Earth orbit satellites, the LEO, what is that? Something Earth orbit. Lower Earth orbit, I don't know. But anyway, those satellites would, would come crashing down. That would affect our uh, social media. I don't know how we could live without that. And <laughs> any rate, so the prediction is for this catastrophic reversal. Now, I mention that because the text that we're looking at today, Esther chapter 6, is really a catastrophic reversal of epic proportions. So here's Haman. We've been talking about Haman. His great desire is to be honored by all, and accompanying his great desire to be honored by all is his great desire to dishonor this fellow Mordecai as much as he possibly can. Um, he's going to experience this catastrophic reversal today. He's going to go away by the end of the day thinking, this is just not what I was planning to have happen. This is not in my wildest nightmares that I think this is how it was going to turn out. So this passage really is the turning point in the entire book of Esther. And the pivotal point, the turning point of the book that lies before us is chapter 6, verse 1, the king could not sleep. So there's three feasts before this moment. There are three feasts after the moment. There's 29 mentions of, the, of Susa before. There's 29 mentions of it afterwards. Up until this time, Haman is growing more and more in um, power and authority. And from this time, uh, Mordecai becomes growing more and more in power and authority. And so the entire book is built on what is called the Hebrew chasm. Chiasm. Can I have the slide, please? That's why we have the, the screen down here. It's going to be like the professor today. There we go. So in the book, it's formed like where we have A and A prime. So at the beginning, we have the extent of Ashuerus' kingdom. And at the end, A prime, we have the conclusion, the extent of Ashuerus' kingdom. And then we went to chapter 1, verse 2, two banquets. Then B prime, the end of the book, two feasts for the Jews. Esther is taken to the king, at chapter 2, verse 1, and C prime is Esther comes before the king. Uh, D is this description of Haman's stature in chapter 3. And D prime is the description of the stature of the Jews. E is the casting of the lot in the war on the 13th of Adair. E prime is the war on the 13th of Adair. F is the ring is given to Haman, Haman's letters, Mordecai rending his clothes the fast of the Jews and Esther. F prime is the giving of the ring to Mordecai, Mordecai's letters, the dressing of Mordecai in royal garment, and the feast for the Jews. Then we have uh, G, uh, Esther's first feast. This is where we were last week in chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. And uh, Haman leaves this first feast in, in good spirits. Uh, uh, where we go? Uh, G, this is the second feast where we'll be next week, and at the end of that, Haman leaves and is hanged. Uh, H, Haman's uh, consultation with his associates and their optimism, and this is where we ended last week. And H prime is Haman's consults with his associates and their pessimism. And then we finally end up in the middle, the king cannot sleep. Isn't that interesting? The whole thing is built on this reflective 
reversal. So you have at the beginning, which, which complements the end. I'm done with that slide. Thanks. So there's this striking symmetry throughout the whole book of, of Esther and the first half matching in reverse from the last half. And the turning point, the king could not sleep in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, wouldn't you think, if you were writing a book like this, that your turning point would be something more significant than the king's insomnia? I mean, a couple of weeks ago we talked about where Mordecai says perhaps you were you've gained your position for such a time as this, that would make a really good turning point, for such a time as this. Or when Esther comes into the king's presence and she doesn't know what's going to happen, it's going to either be good or bad. If it's, if it's good, she gets what she wishes for. If it's bad, she loses her head. You'd think that would make a good turning point. But no, the turning point of the book is this king's insomnia. And to that, let's turn to the turning point of the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6, verse 1. Now, we've just kind of done an overlook as we looked at that chiasm, that outline, and we remember that Vashti was the queen. She gets deposed. Esther gets um, elected in her place, chosen by the king. Mordecai tells Esther, don't tell the king that you're Jewish, so she keeps it quiet. Um, in chapter 2, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. He's an official of some capacity. He becomes aware of an assassination plot. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king is very grateful. He has the two assassins, potential assassins, uh, executed. And Mordecai's uh, part in it is recorded in the Chronicles, but there's no reward. I've mentioned that to you every week. And so you're going to find out this week why that's significant. But for some reason, he's not rewarded, although... It is recorded. Then we get to chapter 3. Haman, who is a man previously unknown to us, suddenly rises to power in the empire. He's the second most powerful man in Persia, and in fact, all of the, the civilized world at that time. He manages to trick the king to uh, make an edict. I don't think the king was ever aware that he has made this law because the king gives Mordecai his signet ring, which means you act in my behalf. You use my signet ring, and it will be just as if the king has given this command. But uh, Haman has this virtual blank check to act in the king's behalf. The king elevates Mordecai and tells, excuse me, elevates Haman. Did I say Mordecai before? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Nobody corrected me this time. All right, so the king elevates Haman and he gives the command that everyone is to bow before him. Mordecai doesn't want to. He doesn't like Haman. He doesn't, I think it's a racist issue, but he will not bow down to Haman. Haman becomes aware of this, and he hates Mordecai for it. He wants to not only kill Mordecai, he wants to kill everybody who's associated with Mordecai. He wants to have this mass extermination of the Jews using the signet ring that the king gave him. He now gives the command that on a certain day, the 13th of Adair, which we just saw back here on the overhead, on a certain day, anyone who doesn't like a Jew can kill him and take his, his possessions and his property. He just wants this max execution, much like what Hitler wanted during uh, World War II. Um, Mordecai becomes aware of this edict. Did he and the other Jews go into mourning? Esther sends her trusted servant to Mordecai to find out why he's mourning and fasting. Mordecai tells her what's going on and says, you have to do something about it. You have to go to the king and intercede for us. She tells him, 
you know I can't do that, right? It's against the law. No one can go into the king's presence without first being summoned. There's a protocol here. You have to be invited into the king's presence or you will be executed. And Mordecai says, the very famous, which I think ought to be the center part of the whole book, you know, perhaps you were born for just such a time as this. Uh, she musters up her strength. She stands in his presence. She honestly doesn't know what's going to happen. She's dressed in her royal gown. And the scepter, the scepter of, of mercy and grace is extended to her, keeping her from being executed. And she comes in. And the king naturally wants to know, what does she want so desperately that she would risk her life to come in against the law and against protocol and approach me. And so he asked her, you know, what do you want? I'll, I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. And what she asked for, uh, could you come to lunch with me today? And so he, she's already got this feast prepared. She invites just the king and Haman to come to this feast because she's hoping this is going to have a positive out, outcome. And at the feast, you would think, okay, you got what you wanted. The king is favorably... Um, disposed towards you, ask for what you want. And what's her request? Uh, could you come to another feast tomorrow? So it's, a, it's actually a, a brilliant chess move. She's moving the pieces on the board to more certainly get what she's going to ask for because she knows this is an impossible ask. She's asking him to reverse an irreversible law. She's asking him to, to reverse a law which, whether he knows it or not, he has made, and it's going to be embarrassing to him if uh, she goes, uh, if, if that comes out, that he has to reverse his own irreversible laws. So she, she invites the king and Haman to come to this second feast. She doesn't know what happens next, but we do. Uh, Haman leaves the feast. He's in pretty good spirits because, heck, he's the only guy in the world that's been invited to join the queen and the king in this private banquet. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's had a lot of honor, and it's a, it's a pretty good position. But she doesn't know that on his way home, he's got another run-in with Mordecai. And again, this time, Mordecai not only doesn't bow to him, he doesn't even stand up. And, 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 and Haman is furious about it. Haman goes home. He tells his wife what a great guy he is. He tells his friends all the blessings he's had. But, you know, with, in spite of all of the, the honors that I have, in spite of the, the family and the, the, the wealth that I have, I just got this burr under my saddle, and I can't be happy because of this Mordecai Newman. So, <laughs> so his friends say, hey, you know, I got this great idea. Why don't you make a stake 75 feet tall and put... Put Mordecai on that. Let's elevate him to the point where we exaggerate his humiliation. Let's lift him up to humiliate him. And Mordecai goes, yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you. Don't quit. <laughs> where was I? <laughs> so, Haman gives the order to build this uh, platform, scaffolding with a big stick on top of it, and he's going to have Mordecai impaled on this big stick. Everyone throughout the city will see what a jerk Mordecai is when he's impaled on this big stick. And he just can't wait for the next morning so that he can go and get permission from the king to execute 
Mordecai. Now, this chapter has been described as the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible, one of the funniest anywhere in the Bible. That's by Karen Jobes. Because it presents this interesting uh, uh, rivalry between the two characters of Mordecai and Haman, but also this contrasting theme here. You know, there's this contrasting theme of, of, of shame and honor, of, uh, of desiring versus, versus getting, of Haman being elevated with honor and Mordecai being elevated in dishonor, and what happens is this massive reversal, this massive turnaround, which brings us to Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, okay, so that night brings a combination here, a connection to chapter 5, the, the night where Haman is having the scaffolds made, and he can't wait for morning so that he can execute Mordecai. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Hashuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Again, so we're talking about this very night, this very night where Haman is, is frantically building the scaffolds on this ridiculously oversized stake to impale Mordecai, and the king is sleepless. He's, it's probably early morning before, before the dawn, and he's, he's sleepless and restless, and he brings in the, the books of the Chronicles. Now, some people think that's because he couldn't get to sleep and he wanted to hear something boring and, and someone <laughs> reading to him would put him to sleep. I think he actually went to work early. I think he's just, he's just reviewing things that are going on. And he discovers, to his astonishment, horror, that some good deed has been done, a good deed which saves the king's life, and no reward has been done. Now, this is scandalous for the king. It's scandalous from the point that if someone saves your life, you need to make a point of it. He needs to be honored. We need to show the rest of the world this is what happens to good people who, who do things like saving the king's life. Just like the idea of impaling him on a stick is this is what happens to bad people who threaten the kingdom. The king is quite concerned that this good deed has been recorded but not rewarded. So he, uh, he, he's, he asks about it, and he discovers there has not been uh, anything that, that's been done. And it's been now several years since this good deed has gone unrewarded. Uh, re Verse uh, 4. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> and Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, 
let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Again, the irony is sweet, is it not? <laughs> so Haman comes in just at the time that the king is pondering his predicament. There's Mordecai has not been rewarded. You know, what should we do to... to, to uh, honor Mordecai to lift him up and exalt him. At the same time, Mordecai, Haman has come in and he wants to know what he can do to lift him up and embarrass him, to humiliate him. Haman doesn't bother to ask. You know, a lot of could have been settled real early if Haman just said, who are we talking about here? But he just <laughs> assumes, who would the king want to exalt more than me? You know, who would the king want to lift up? And so right at this time, the, the irony is so sweet, he, uh, he, he comes in, he's in the outer court, the king says, who is it? And his attendants say, your, your number two man, Haman, is in the outer court, and the king goes, perfect, he's just the guy who can help me with the situation, he's the guy who would help me to, to plan on how to honor him, and of course, Mordecai's not planning to honor him, Mordecai wants to, to humiliate, thank you. Haman wants to humiliate Mordecai. And what unfolds here is kind of like, you know, a Shakespeare's comedy of errors or uh, Abbott and Costello's Who's on First. You know, they're, they're talking together, but they're not talking about the same thing. And they assume the other guy knows what they're talking about, but they're completely missing the point. So the king has Haman brought in, and he asks him the question, you know, what should be done? For the man the king delights to honor, notice he omits the name. If he had just said, I want to honor Mordecai, you know, we would have never gone anywhere with this. But he, he, he just leaves it out. And they're conversing, thinking entirely, they're, they're talking about entirely different people. And Haman doesn't get it. You know, he's, he's thinking it's all about him. I mean, obviously, you know, who would the king want to honor more than me? He, you know, he's... He's made me number two in the whole kingdom. He's given me his signet ring. I've been invited to a private banquet with just the king and, and the queen, and I've been invited back again the next day. Well, of course the king wants to honor me. Who else would he be talking about? So Haman is assuming that this whole discussion is about honoring himself and, his, and, and, and feeding his own self-aggrandizement. He, he's thinking about what are the highest honors, what would I like the, the most and, and for this yet unnamed honoree. See, he can't imagine anyone that deserves something more than himself. By the way, Haman, is, as we've already determined, is a very rich man. And naturally, you know, you're going to get a gift from the king. You might ask for land or title or money, but Haman's already got those. There's nowhere up for the upwardly mobile guy to go. He's already got land, he's already got money, he's already got the title, he's number two guy. You know what he wants? He wants to feed his idol, and his idol is public recognition. He wants other people to admire him, he wants other people to uh, praise him, and so he gives this list to the king which feeds his desire 
to be praised. He wants to wear the king's own robes. Now, it could be that there was something you know, magical or something implicit about wearing the king's robes. But, you know, most of the people who would watch him being paraded around aren't going to know where those robes came from, other than that they are royalty. And he wants to sit on the king's own horse. And he wants the most noble men around to be involved in praising him publicly so that everyone will praise him and everyone will be astonished and he gets what he wants, and that's to have his ego stroked. He gets what he wants, and that is the praise of other people. He gets what he wants. You know what he wants? He wants to know what it would feel like to be king, where everybody admired you, and everybody praised you, and everybody respected you, everybody bowed down before you. He wants to be dressed up as if he was the king. He wants to be treated like a king, and he wants it to be done in public. Verse... 10, then the king said to Haman, okay, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so, dun, 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 <laughs> to Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Man, that must have hurt. <laughs> then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. All right, let's back up just a little bit because of the delicious irony here. You know, Haman is, is immediately told to carry out his own suggestion to the letter. It's even repeated back to him. Do everything that you have said. Do it without fail and do it right away. Do it right now. And then... Then the killer, he says, do all of this for Mordecai. And then he adds, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. He, he, his name comes out at the very last possible moment, which just elevates the shock of Haman not being the one who's honored. Now, I have to ask a question here, because the king realizes that Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Didn't he just issue an edict that all of the Jews are to be murdered on the 13th of Adair, you know, about 10 months from now? You know, how is it that, that the king would give an order to murder someone, to elevate someone that he's, that he's also planning to murder? And I think the answer is the king's stupid. He doesn't have any idea that he's given this edict. He gave the ring to Haman to, to make the law in his name. I don't think... King Xerxes knows that he's made a law to eradicate the Jews. He's, he's, he, that would be a complete surprise to him, which is why he mentions this Mordecai, because it's Mordecai who sits at the king's gate who told him about the assassination plot. That's all he knows. He doesn't know about this, uh, this law that, that uh, supposedly he has passed. He's, he's completely unaware of this recent edict. So anyway, Haman must take 
the king's royal outfit, his garments, and he is the noble who will lead the horse around and proclaims all that this is all that this is this is all done to the man that the king desires to honor. And how that must have just galled Mordecai to have to be the one. Thank you. How this must have galled. You know, it would make it easier if I just read my notes, right? <laughs> it must have galled Haman <laughs> to give this, this honor to, to Mordecai. Uh, so at any rate, he's, he's super embarrassed and ashamed, humiliated. Things couldn't have gone worse for him. He covers his head. He goes back to his friends in his home, and he relates to them this time all the shame that he's just had to endure and isn't it interesting here, this time, instead of his friends congratulating him and glad-handing him and telling him all the good things that are going to happen to him, this time they tell him, if Mordecai's a Jew, it's all over for you. You have already begun to fall. And I wonder, how do they know that? Uh, because just yesterday when this happened they were thinking yeah let's kill Mordecai every Jew let's, let's, I'm down for that let's kill the Jews but here for some reason they see the hand of God in all this the hand of Israel's God for some reason they see providence in the way these things have transpired and they come to the conclusion that, that not only is Mordecai going to be successful here but you are going to Fall. You're going to, this is, this is, uh, this is your end. He's, he's so prideful that there's no room for anyone else in his mind except himself. He's so arrogant that he thinks the king couldn't possibly want to honor anyone other than himself. He's narcissistic and he's foolish. And his pride is his downfall. Jason Meyer warns, as finite creatures, we cannot fully grasp God's infinite revulsion against pride's rebellion. God hates pride. What makes pride so singularly repulsive to God is the way that pride contends for supremacy with God himself. Pride sets itself in opposition to God. The only fitting response is for God to oppose the proud. Of course, we know that James 4, 6, that's exactly what God says he does. That's probably why pride is not simply another sin among many, but a sin in a category of its own. Other sins lead the sinner further away from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. I hope that in our relationship with the king of kings, we are never like Haman thinking, well, of course God wants to honor me. Of course God wants to do good stuff for me. I'm, I'm a good guy. God needs me. You know, I'm, I'm benefiting God's kingdom. I, I, God, God should naturally want to honor me. I'm important. I'm great. Well, first of all, the only one that's indispensable is God. We were born in time and for a time, and then we die. But from eternity to eternity, he is God. And second of all, we can't imagine that we can earn God's favor or assume that if we do what God wants, 
He owes me. He owes me the privilege of being honored and rewarded. After all, Jesus said, when you've done everything as you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. And third, we should always be amazed at God's graciousness to us and never desensitized to it. I hope that in our prayers, we never stop saying, God, I am really grateful for your grace to me, for your goodness towards me, but it's an astonishing thing that you should be so good to me when I am so sinful, and that you should be continually good to me when I am continually sinful. So we should never assume God's in our back pocket and he owes it to us. Back to Meyer, he contends that the, the antidote for our pride is to think more about God. Meyer says, the rivers of self-forgetfulness flow down from the Godward height of worship. Isn't that beautiful? The rivers of self-forgetfulness flow down from the Godward height of worship. He and he alone is worthy of all worship and praise. You see, in Haman, there's, there's nothing that even smacks of self-forgetfulness. He's full of self-promotedness. He wants other people to worship him. And there's a real danger in our hearts, too, that we want to be worshipped and that we want to rob God, who alone is worthy to be worshipped. Without God's grace, Haman would only be continually trying to seek satisfaction for his own idol. Without God's grace, I would ask you to ask yourself, if God simply withdrew his restraining hand from you today, where would your own debauchery take you? You know, it's easy to condemn Haman because of his pride, but just think if God stopped restraining your sin in your heart, how would it overtake you? And then we should just beg God to save us from ourselves and ask him to empower us to be, to be true to our repentance and make our repentance good. At any rate, the, the, that the king could not sleep is the turning point in the book of Esther. But there's another turning point, another cataclysmic reversal that took place in history, and it happens on Easter Sunday morning. But it looks a lot like the story of Esther up until this point. For the Jews, for Jesus, things are going along pretty good, and then things suddenly go very badly. There's just been a week since Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the people are very hopeful that he's the Messiah. They're praising him. They're throwing down their coats, and they're breaking off branches from the tree, and they're hoping that this is the one that God has sent to be their redeemer. And by the end of the week, they hate him, and they're calling for his crucifixion. And Jesus, like Mordecai, may very well be impaled on the wooden tree for something he did not do or does not deserve. Only in this case, God does not save Jesus from the wooden stake. He goes to this awful, hopeless, incomprehensibly tragic event, the execution on the, 
on a Roman cross outside of the, the city gates. And yet, even here, and most importantly, like with the book of Esther, we see the providential hand of God moving, orchestrating these tragic events for his own purposes, for, for his own glory. And as a result of what took place on the cross, we come to the disciples in the book of Acts, who because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, they are proclaiming that he is the Savior, that he is, that he is alive again, and that, and that uh, we might have new life and hope by receiving Christ Jesus as our, as our Lord and Savior. So the central motif of this reversal, you know, you know, it all begins here with the king's sleepless night. And from this turning point on, now the story flows to now be favorably uh, disposed towards the Jews, and especially Mordecai, because, um, because now Haman is about to get his just desserts and, and, and Mordecai is to be, to be elevated. And it's because of this that a lot of commentators have suggested the name of the book really shouldn't be Esther. It really has very little to do with Esther. She's got a minor role in it all. It ought to be, ought to be named Mordecai because this is all about Mordecai's potential execution. And then from here, from this turning point where we are now, um, now it's about Mordecai's exaltation. And we see all of these coincidences being piled up as we witness the providential hand of God. Remember I've mentioned a couple times that throughout the book of uh, Esther, the name of God is never mentioned, not by the characters and not by the narrator. God's name is never mentioned. But the point is, in spite of the fact that his name is never mentioned, we see his hand everywhere. We see the providential manipulation by God's hand in every single uh, event here. You know, we see these coincidences piling up. It just so happens that the king does, can't sleep one night, and on that particular night, it just so happens that Mordecai Haman can't sleep either because he can't wait to go talk to the king. It just so happens that uh, when the king calls for the royal records to be read, he lands on this passage about Mordecai not being rewarded for, for what he's done. It just so happens that that Haman comes in assuming he's the unnamed honoree and he neglects to mention the king that it's, that it's actually Mordecai that we're talking about. All these coincidences, and we've talked about dozens of them before, they can't just be coincidental. They're showing the divine hand of God at work, the invisible hand of God at work through all of these things. And as the old adage goes, that coincidences are merely God's way of remaining anonymous. Well, there's no mistaking here that God is powerfully at work, though in ways that appear to us to be very subtle. He's there, and he's at work. Friday's uh, geomagnetic storm did cause some changes. There were some unusually uh, bright aurora borealis in Canada and in Scotland, and an unusual color if you follow auroras. It's very unusual for there to be orange in the color, usually pink but, or blueish, because of the interference with the oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere. But these were, these were orange, and some radio stations were, were blocked out because of the 
uh, magnetic interference. But fortunately, we were sheltered by the Earth's magnetosphere. But again, scientists are warning us that there's going to be this uh, sudden global reversal, a catastrophic reversal. So you got that to worry about, too. It gets worse, actually, because they say that just prior to the reversal, the magnetic strength of the magnetosphere goes, drops way down. I told you it's dropped 40%, but it has to actually drop down to about 90% before a reversal can take place. But while it's dropping down, that's when we're most exposed to the energy particles that are coming at us from the sun and outside and elsewhere in the universe. It's been estimated that since the last geomagnetic polar reversal that there, there has been a close call where it didn't reverse 15 times in that same amount of time. And it, each time, the magnetic uh, structure of the Earth would the, drop way down, but it doesn't actually flip, and then it starts to build back up. It's called an excursion. And uh, this is where most of us are, are exposed at that time. And so you just got to wonder, is that how civilization is going to end, you know, where we have this geomagnetic polar storm and it wipes out our satellites and our, and our uh, social media and all our communication, all of our finances? Is that how civilization is going to end? There's something else. There's another cataclysmic reversal which the Bible tells us about. And Paul tells us in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Uh, this is a more impressive turning point, a more impressive cataclysmic reversal. Paul says, then the end comes when he hands over the kingdom of God, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when he says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son of God himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. When the kingdoms of men reach this turning point, when Jesus returns again to establish his rule and his authority and his reign and his power, he asserts himself in that place, and probably the most catastrophic reversal of all time, he abolishes even death. Now, the great reversal comes when the effects of the fall are forever removed, and a new heaven and a new earth will be revealed. And all this, we are told, is done so that God may be all in all, so that at that day, Every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, hold fast to your promise that Jesus is coming again and that rights will be, wrongs will be made right and that the effects of the fall will be eradicated and we will dwell with you in eternity. It's an awfully big promise to embrace, but you are an awfully big God, the creator of the universe in the first place. And we trust your word and we trust your authority and we trust your power to put it into effect. 
And I pray, God, that we live our lives constantly looking forward to that day, that coming again. And now as we share in these elements, this communion with one another, and we share it mystically in your presence, we ask that you would illuminate these truths to our hearts, that you would make us grateful for what you have done and excited for what you have promised. We set these common things aside now to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'd like the men who are going to be distributing this, if you'll come forward, and Connie and Sandra, if you'll come up this time. So many clumsy words The noise of what we often say Is not worth being heard When Father Wisdom wanted to Communicate his love He spoke it in one final perfect word He spoke the incarnation and so was born the Son. His final word was Jesus, he needed no other one. He spoke flesh and blood so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born the baby who would die to make it mine. And so the light became the life and manna became man eternity stepped into time so we could understand he spoke the incarnation and so was born the son his final word was jesus he needed no other one he spoke flesh and blood so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born the baby who would die to make it mine. And so was born the baby who would die to make it mine. You and I, we use so many clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. When Father Wisdom wanted to communicate his love, he spoke it in one final perfect word. Tuition.
that we go back to every single communion Sunday. And it begins with, on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. I thought it curious that uh, Paul introduces it that way. Because theologically, the communion is connected to Passover, right? Jesus, is, Jesus says to his disciples, I've eagerly longed to share this Passover, this meal with you, because I won't have it again until in the kingdom. So theologically, the Lord's Supper is connected to Passover. But what does he say? Right away he says, on the night that he was betrayed. Now we pass over that, I think, too quickly. Because we think naturally, well, he's talking about Judas, the night that Judas betrays him, and that is our time marker. That's when all this takes place. Curious, though, when Jesus sets that up, he knows that all of them are going to betray him, not just Judas. Remember, he says, this night, each of you will deny me and flee. And exactly what happened. All of them fled him. All of them denied him. All of them betrayed him. All of you have denied him. All of you have abandoned him. All of you. I include myself in this. I'm not pointing the finger at you. See how it stays up here? <laughs> all of us have betrayed the Lord. We are all guilty of that. Not just Judas. But Jesus is very much aware of that when he's establishing this communion with them. And he's extending that all of you are included in this grace. Now, if you jump ahead, we're in 1 Corinthians 11, maybe 25. Uh, I usually end the words of institution before I get here to 11.25 where it says, therefore whoever takes of the, the elements, the bread or the, or the wine, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of, of Jesus. And we naturally think, and I used to think this too, that in order to not be guilty, in order to take the communion, I need to be worthy. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say you need to be worthy. And so we're scrambling, thinking, have I confessed all my sins and have I repented of them? Am I, have I let go of them or at least wanted to let go of them? Have you ever done that? You think, what does it mean to be worthy to take communion so that I'm not going to be offensive to the Lord or do something dastardly? Because the next verse said, this is why many of you are sick and have fallen asleep, sick and died. And we're thinking, this is a serious matter, and we need to take the communion in a serious way. I need to examine myself and see if there's any sin. That's not what it says. It doesn't say you have to be a worthy person. It says you can't take communion in an unworthy manner. Well, and specifically, what unworthy manner would that be? Well, it would be unworthy if you're like Haman thinking that you're worthy. If you think in your pride, well, of course he died for me. I made the good choice of receiving him and myself as Lord and Savior. Well, of course he meant this for me. That would be unworthy. Or if you were to say, other people may have betrayed you, but not me. Other people may be arrogant and proud and disobedient, but not me. The one who's worthy is the one who says, I'm not worthy. And comes before the Lord and says, I need, like the disciples need, I need these elements. I need to be reminded in a very tangible way that I have made a bond. And I'm communicating this covenant bond through these covenant elements. 
I'm participating not just with my brothers and sisters, but in a very spiritual way, I'm participating with the Lord, who at this moment walks among us. And he shares this. We share the bread of life, the stuff that life is made out of. We share the, the, the glass of wine, which is both bitter and celebratory. It's, life is bitter and full of celebrations and sadnesses. And we share this together. We share this, brothers and sisters. What you suffer, I suffer. And we recognize in the bread the righteous body of Christ, the righteous life of Christ, which was given for us and his righteousness credited to us. And God says, I don't see you as the derelict that you are. I see you as righteous as my son, Jesus Christ. And we take the, the wine and we say, this represents his blood, which washes away my sin, which satisfies God that a price has been paid and has been accepted. This is the body of the Lord Jesus, which was shed for you. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus, which cleanses you from your sin and satisfies God's demands. The blood of Jesus. Let's pray. We celebrate as we look back at a very bitter moment. Father God, when you had to spend your wrath against Jesus who had never sinned and knew no reason to be the object of your anger. We thank you that he was there in our place. And at the same time, we celebrate as we look forward to the fact that each of us taking this communion this morning have been invited to the communion once again when the new heaven and the new earth are established and we sit at this banqueting table those who are the redeemed. So we look back and we look forward and we ask in the meantime, Father God, give us the courage, the endurance, and the want to, to live lives that please you, that you're able to bless and prosper. We ask that you please bless and prosper our church and our families, our witness. We ask that you would do this not because we are worthy, but because Jesus Christ is. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us for this last song.